from the Duck South Studios in Morgan City, Mississippi. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I want to punch you in the face so bad right now. This is the On The X podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Get the governor harumph. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Today's episode is brought to you by Advantage Multi from Bayer. Advantage Multi is veterinarian's number one choice in the prevention of heartworms, fleas, roundworms, hookworms, and whipworms. Treats and controls sarcoptic mange. Make sure your dog is protected by using Advantage Multi. I said what I said and I'll stand by it to the death. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? And now, here are your hosts, Jay Paul Jackson. You just love to hear yourself talk, don't you? Even when you're not saying anything. Rocky LaFleur. Yo, Houston Kennedy. Please, Houston, we have a problem. And Josh Webb. Coons. We're raccoons trying to get on our back porch. Mama just chased them off with a broom. Welcome to the On Deck Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I'm Jay Paul Jackson, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rocky LaFleur and Josh Webb. And also, we're very lucky to have with us a very special guest, a member of the Outdoor Legends Hall of Fame, one of the most professional and best waterfowling personalities in national TV, and one heck of a duck hunter, and my friend, Mike Morgan. Mike, buddy, good to have you with us, man. Jay Paul, I appreciate you inviting me. Just, uh, you know, it's going to be an honor to be with you all today. <laughs> well, it's an honor to be with me. I know I ain't sure about Rocky and Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, another person we forgot to uh, give the, the pre-Jay Paul speech to, Rocky. That makes two in a row. We've got to start We've got to start talking to people before Jay Paul gets to them. <laughs> Mike, we're glad to have you, man. I, I, look, I, you know, Jay Paul had it right when he said legend because uh, – what you guys have done innovation-wise in the outdoor duck hunting, just especially the duck hunting industry, has been unbelievable. So well, I appreciate it. You know, we've had a good time doing it, uh, and it's a you know it's a it's a labor of love. Amen. And I will tell you what, I feel very fortunate to have you on here because I figured right now you'd be out on that labor of love, uh, killing ducks or geese somewhere on the continent. Um, but you were just telling me earlier today that that wasn't the case because uh, of a freeze-up up in Canada. Tell us a little bit about that and what you think's going on with the migration right now because I know you've got crews out there and you've got your ear to the ground, and I think at this juncture, all of our listeners really want to know where the birds are and what's going on, so we'd love any insight we can get from you, Mike. All right, well, generally, this time of year, we head up to uh, up to Alberta, uh, on the Alberta Saskatchewan line, and we start hunting ducks and just kind of follow them down. And we like to go toward the end of October because when we get up there in Alberta, we do a lot of duck hunting, but we also do a lot of predator hunting, so we just kind of mix it up. But what happened this year is we were supposed to have left last week, uh, Sunday of last week, and hunted all the way through the week and, and leaving about right now. But the boy that we hunt with up there, uh, Rob Reynolds, who has uh, – uh, Elk Point Outfitters up there uh, called us up and said that they had had a uh, an unusually cool 
spell right there, and it dumped about five or six inches of snow, and then it warmed up a little bit, and then it snowed again on top of that, which caused a crust. And he said, you know, it doesn't ever get too cold for a duck. A duck can stand 30 below zero, but they have to be able to get to their food, and they have to be able to get to to water. Uh, What happened is when that, that snow melted a little and got a crust on it and it snowed over it, those ducks could not get down to the food. So he said every duck in that part of the country literally left. Now, I don't know how far south, you know, I don't know if they made it all the way into the U.S., but the area we hunt, which is probably 50 miles around Elk Point right there, he said there was not a duck to be found. And he said most of the geese had left and all the ducks. So he said this is the first time in 18 years that they hadn't had ducks in that area. I mean, not one duck. And so we did, we had to cancel the hunt. And uh, we've got another hunt. We've got a, a crew up in Manitoba right now. I hadn't heard from them today, but the, the weather's been quite a bit warmer over there. So hopefully they still got some ducks. But I know that part of Alberta was just, uh, it was just void of ducks. And you know, again, the ducks have to. It doesn't get too cold, but if they run out of food, they got to go. They got they they move. Well, what is that, Mike? You talked about the Elk Point area. Is that right? Right. Is that it's, where is uh, that you know, located? You know, just for a general idea, anyway. If you fly to Edmonton and go due east until you hit just about the Saskatchewan border, it's about forty miles north of there. So it's on a level with Edmonton, Alberta, and about. 40 miles north, but uh, there's a little town called Vermilion right in there, but it's Elk Point. It's just a small town uh, right there, and it's, uh, like I say, we've hunted there for at least the last 10 years and have just had absolutely the best hunt you could ever have. But he said, if you come up now, you're going to be doing staring at a blue sky. You know, I've hunted in that area around Vermilion. You're a little bit south of Lloydminster which is right there on the border also, correct? Yeah, we've hunted Lloydminster quite a bit, and uh, so I know exactly, that's exactly right in that area right there is where it happened. Yeah, that that area, I mean, it always seems like around the 1st of November, around Halloween is kind of a dangerous time to, mm-hmm. to go to that area because, you know, that's usually when that's your last chance and it can be feast or, or famine. So for all of our guys listening, you know, we're talking about an area in Saskatchewan that's, um, latitude-wise, probably an hour or 90 minutes north of the latitude that Saskatoon is on. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to figure, if that's what they've got in that area, probably everything from Saskatoon north has definitely lost their birds now. And, and I would figure falling on down near to the U.S. border, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's getting close down there. Uh, I know, again, it just depends on the snow. year before last, uh, we hunted uh, that same area, and Rob has got another area down in southern Alberta, and he went there the third week in November, and it was cold. It was three below zero, but they hadn't had the snow, and he and he called me up, and he said, you take the best day that we've ever had in the last 10 years and multiply it by five, and that's how many ducks are here right now, but they could still get to the food, and what those ducks do up there is, it's, it's you know, we go up there strictly for ducks. We don't care about the geese, so... And, and we want to go up there because in Alberta, non-residents can hunt predators. You can't do that in Saskatchewan. So that's the reason we go to Alberta where we can hunt predators and ducks. But what happens that late in the season is those mallards get in huge groups, you know, 500, 800, 1,000. And, they'll, and they know that they have to stay on this open water uh, or the water to keep it open. So these big masses of ducks stay on these ponds and, and rivers and stuff to keep the water open and maybe – Three or four hundred will fly out and feed, and the rest of them stay there and keep the water open. And those three hundred go back and sit on it, and another three hundred get out. 
So we're seeing these huge groups of real colored up green heads, and they're coming in huge groups. And that's the way they stay up there when it gets so cold. They keep that water open, even though it's, I like to say, we've hunted up there in three to five below zero. and uh, But they're still open water because these ducks just know that they, they get in the big groups and, and half of them sit on the water to keep it open while the other half feeding and they just swap up back and forth all day long. And, and we hammer Mike, them. That's, Mike, that's, a, that's pretty cool. I, I, that's the way, that's the way they, to do they it, like are, I say. They are smart, smart animals. Uh, you know, it, they're smarter than we a lot of times give them credit for. But oh, definitely. from an agriculture perspective, and I'm going to get into a second point, Mike, as as you answer this question. But from a, you know, for you or Jay Paul, because I've never hunted Canada, the nor- I've hunted North and South Dakota. But what does it look like up there? Uh, what's the what's the crops mostly grown in the area where you're hunting? The area we hunt is just, it's rolling hills, and it's all I call them chickpeas. It's little peas, and it's oats and wheat. Uh, and but we mainly hunt wheat or pea fields. And, uh, you know, the, everything has been harvested by that time of the year generally. And those ducks are in there just by the millions. And, you know, and there's so much of it, you can't hardly eat it out. Even as many ducks and as geese that are in there, there's always new fields to go to every day. And, and you don't have that many people that are hunting in that area, so it's easy to find a place to hunt. Uh, and, and like I say, it doesn't get too cold for them. It just gets where the snow gets so deep they can't get to the food. Yeah, and it seems to me like the ducks up there prefer the peas over everything. Uh, oh yeah, no doubt. I don't know what variety. I don't know what variety they are. To me, they look like some variation on a soybean or a chickpea. I think you know, as you just said, something mm-hmm. like that. That that seems to be their preferred food source. And um, it's been a couple of years since I've been up there. Mm-hmm. I know we'd seen a decline for a little while. Um, after about 2005 and the amount of peas that they were planting, is that starting to come back? The areas we've been hunting, it is. There's just plenty of them. But like I say, we don't go the time of year uh, where the geese, you know, again, we're looking for ducks. We don't, Mojo is known for ducks. We don't have that many goose products. So we, we go up there strictly for the ducks. If you want a good goose hunt or something, go earlier in the year. You'll get a good combo hunt. You'll kill your ducks and you'll, you'll kill your geese. But that's not what we're looking for. We just... You know, you go earlier in the year, and so far up north up there, you know, those green heads aren't colored up. So uh, half the ducks you're shooting that that people think are hens, or even more than that, you can tell when you're sitting right there in front of them. But watching them on TV, it looks like you're just shooting hen after hen after hen because those the green heads hadn't got the color in them yet. And unless they're sitting right there, you know, 30 feet in front of you, it's hard to tell. And we get a lot of people complaining, man, why are you shooting so many hens? And I've explained to them a hundred times, you know, that we're not shooting hens, we're shooting greenheads. We can tell because they're, you know, they're right there in front of us. It's hard to for that camera to pick that up. But we want to go, we go later in the year where they're really greened up. And, uh, it's, you know, it's easier for people to tell what we're shooting. And then we don't get nearly as many people harassing us about shooting so many hens because we try not to, you know, every now and then we'll slip in there. But if at all possible, we're going to shoot as many ducks and as, much, as good as the hunting is up there. Why not just shoot all greenheads? Mike, uh, the reason I ask you about the the agriculture that that surrounds the area that you hunt, Jay Paul and I were riding around Tennessee last week, and you know, Jay Paul said, "Hop out of the truck." We were riding around. He says, "Hop out! I want to show you something." And on one side of the road, there was a no-till field, uh, no-till corn, and on the other side of the road, it was a I'm guessing it was probably a soybean field, 
been tilled over, disc over, and looked like they they were starting to throw the rows back up on it. But mm-hmm. Jay Paul made a great point in talking about how no till and what we're doing here in the south. Because as I look out the windows of the Duck South Studios, I see nothing but bare dirt and hipped up rows as far as you can see. Right. And, you know, in a no-till situation, there's so much food left behind. Now, as mm-hmm. you go up and down the flyway, how much of the no-till are you seeing? And how do you, in your opinion, how do you think it affects waterfowling? You know, I'm, I don't know how y'all are. I'm old, man. I'm 62 years old. And I started duck hunting when I was about eight years old. So I've duck hunted quite a long time. And, uh, you know, it's things are, are definitely changing, you know, just the way people manage for ducks, the way they've gone from, you know, to the no-till and to the till. And, and uh, just so it, it's everybody's got their own opinion. You know, when uh, when I first started hunting, uh, like the Mississippi Delta, there was it was before the, they cut everything out up there for you know to plant soybeans and put all the soybeans in. So it was, you know, there were tons of ducks up there, but they were in big acorn flats that were flooded up, you know, in green tree reservoirs or flooded off the river. So there was still plenty of ducks, but it wasn't a big, huge soybean fields and rice and corn and everything else. There were so it's uh it's changed over the years. You know, it's hard to say how things are are affecting it, but I know that uh, we used to kill quite a few more mallards i've had I've, I've been in one club now for 30 years and uh and i know we've kept a, a pretty solid record of what we've shot and it seems to me like the the greenheads are migrating further to the west we're killing the same number of ducks but we're killing less and less and less greenheads we're killing more and more gadwalls and uh, less and less greenheads so i you know every every bit of this farming and agriculture it affects them you know they're they're putting so many places in and, and the temperatures have changed you know it it when i was young you could look up in uh north dakota somewhere and it'd be 20 below zero and you look up there now i looked at greensburg kansas today because we usually hunt there and it's going to be 90 there today i mean it ought to be 30 there so you know the the difference in the agriculture and the difference in and the weather it's it affects those ducks and you just kind of got to follow them used to where we could depend on a, a place to have ducks at a certain time now we have to call up and say, okay, are they, are they there? Are they not there? And and you just have to chase them. I know Jay Paul's done it, but I I put four or five thousand miles a weekend chasing these duck, ducks while we we're you know filming. Amen. And you get to a place and they're just not there. Isn't that right, Jay yeah. Paul? Oh no, no doubt about it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And you know, when we stopped, Mike, um, I know uh, you and I are friends on social media, but you may not have seen this. We stopped and we did a Facebook Live. And because we've talked about this oh, several times on the podcast, and I'd made the comment a few weeks ago that I think, um, and I, I've talked to biologists that say that you know this is accurate. One of the things, and it's just one of many factors. It's not the only factor by any means, right. um, but one of many factors is no-till farming, particularly um, uh, no-till corn, because mm-hmm. you don't have to have very much of that. We had several people that jumped on that on social media and said, well, I live in northern Illinois, and I wish they did more of that here. We don't see that happening. Well, you know, uh, there are certain sections of any – I mean, in Tennessee, I'm in Dyer County. We're the number one soybean-producing county in the state of Tennessee. 
Um, you know, you may have other counties where corn's number one, and they don't think that anybody in Tennessee grows soybeans because, you know, it doesn't happen in their county. But the reality is there are, you know, there's a lot of no-till. I think that's one factor that I've seen that's affecting birds. I've seen it firsthand. They've got that abundance of food. You just said something else that I really want to comment on, too. Um, You said you think that a lot of the birds, a lot of the mallards, I'm sorry, are now migrating to the west. And I have to say, I 100% agree with you. And we had a guide from Oklahoma, Brad Allback of Allback Adventures on here um, a couple of weeks ago. And Brad made the comment that he's hunted Oklahoma for the last 20 years and that in the last decade, the number of center pivots, the amount of irrigation that has come on the scene um, mm-hmm. in agriculture, and you can see it, it's a flyover state. I mean, Mike, I know you've looked out the window of an airplane flying over Oklahoma and Kansas. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, those those circles, we didn't have that 15 years ago. I That's really right. think that the, the irrigation, uh, helping crop production out there in those plain states has really affected the migration, and it's taken the mallards that used to come, or at least some of them that used to come down the Mississippi Flyway, and move them to the west. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think it's absolute. I mean, you know, used to we could stay right here in Mississippi and kill all the mountains. And we could still kill plenty of mountains here, don't get me wrong, but it's not it's not near the percentage that we used to kill and, and we hunt, you know, we hunt Louisiana and I, and they they're even moving west out of Louisiana. They're moving we're we're killing uh lots of mallards in even in eastern Texas and Kansas and and uh, Oklahoma. And and all that, it just there's there's just tons of mallards over in there that we weren't killing in those areas, uh, in those kind of numbers back years ago. But it just seems to me like, and like I say, we're not killing less ducks. We're killing the same amount of ducks. We're just killing less mallards. We're killing more, you know. We we kill more gadwalls and and uh, you know a few other type of ducks. But it seems like the biggest duck that's moved in are the gadwalls, and uh, but the mallards just seem to be moving west to us. Uh- as as you go west hunting them, Mike, and, and as you kind of follow them around, is it the same food source, state to state, or is it? China? I know, like in Texas, there's a lot of peanuts in Oklahoma too. So is it? But is it still a lot of hunting them over corn, hunting them over uh, soybeans, or, or is the food any different than it is here in the Mississippi Delta, or what's it look like as you move west? Well, you know, just like we were hunting in eastern Texas, which nobody would think had any mountains, but there's a lot of mountains, but they're in, I mean, they'll be in Big Acorn Flats. There's a big DU project over there we hunt that's uh, north of Midland, Texas. And uh, they just, they put in a project there, flooded big, uh, uh, on Sandy Creek there, they flooded a big uh, uh, hardwood flat. And, I mean, it just packs in there with mallards. And, uh, but, they, you know, it's it's the same thing. Like you say, peanut fields, soybeans, uh just any type of food that's over there, but I I think just the, the general migration is kind of kind of shifted west. It's uh, it's amazing. I, we had our best reports to Mojo last year on ducks anywhere in the United States that was constant was was uh, Idaho and Washington State and up in that area. They had seemed like they had the best uh, overall hunts of anybody we talked to last year. Well, I've got some good friends that live in Twin Falls. Idaho, and uh, they, I mean, they had some good cold fronts, and they just hammered the mallards in there. It's unbelievable. It's constant all season long. Well, it's it's been interesting to hear, especially since we started doing the podcast and 
start doing different things at Duck South at the amount of people who, who say that, that, you know, without a doubt stand behind the fact that, that the bulk of the migration, especially mallards, has shifted west. Um, mm-hmm. It's really, uh, it's interesting. And then we, as we, you know, we talk to more and more people who, who uh, you know, hunt them, have hunt, who hunt them here and hunt them in the west, and, you know, you get that firsthand account of, you know, it's definitely happening, you know, or, you know, yeah. already has and continuing. Yeah. yeah, kill a lot of mallards in Colorado now, and, you know, and, and even up in, in the northern states up, you know, Montana, and it's amazing. One thing that I've I've always tried to figure out, and Jay Paul, you may know, is, you know, I've hunted Mississippi about everywhere in Mississippi and Louisiana and all over, and I bet you in my whole life I hadn't seen ducks dry field feeding in Mississippi or Louisiana two or three times. Now, why will they do it in Missouri and Kansas and up there, and they won't do it? Why don't they do it here? Anybody have any idea? Yeah, you know, I ask biologists about that, and uh, their food source changes a little bit as they Mm -hmm. move further further south. So my understanding of it is this, and and I know a lot about duck hunting, but I'm not an expert about everything, and certainly this is one of those areas where I may not have it 100% accurate, but we have seen in Tennessee and Mississippi some dry fields feeding. As a matter of fact, there's a huge cornfield down by the Mississippi River right here in Dyer County that if we get really tough weather without um, snow or with it just starting before the field gets covered up, you know, the temperature starts dropping down around 15, 20 degrees, Mm -hmm. you're going to see birds all of a sudden start to dry field. But that is the only time that we see it here. So I asked a biologist at Delta about this a few years ago, and his explanation was that they're loading up on carbs as they come down the flyway, and corn and other grain that they feed on in the dry fields, that is their main focus. But puddle ducks, um, they are omnivores. They don't eat just grain. And when they get further south and they're nearing the end of their migration, instead of stocking up on the carbohydrates, they switch to a diet that's richer in invertebrates and other things that they find down uh, in the shallow water along with the other food sources. They need to put on fat. So they're moving to those invertebrates, and they're feeding predominantly in the water. But you will see in times when things really, really get tough, and they got to have that energy, they've got to have those carbohydrates, occasionally we'll see them move back to dry feeding, but you're right, I haven't seen it but a handful of times in my entire life in Mississippi and Tennessee, um, and the explanation I got is they want carbs, those grains, when they're about to head south, when mm-hmm. they get here, they want those invertebrates put on that. Sounds logical, sounds logical, I'll bet. Hey, I got, a, I've got, I, I got two points to make real quick. One is everybody that's listening to this podcast, we really need you to remember that J. Paul saying that he's not an expert in everything. Uh, you won't hear that probably again. But, but look, we're, we're going to talk about Mojo, but I have one more question since we have two great experts on here today. Um, one of the oldest excuses in the book when it comes to the migration of ducks is talking about snow cover. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was in now when I, when I was in South Dakota with Jay Paul a couple of years ago, I actually saw mallards standing on eighteen inches of a, eighteen inches of snow, picking corn off of the stalk. But right. 
let me ask you your both of y'all's opinions on this because the guys that were in South Dakota were wildlife biologists and they were telling me this as I was talking to them. But one of the oldest excuses in the books is, hey, we didn't have enough snow cover to push ducks. Well, that's not always the case because these guys from South Dakota, you know, they told me, they said, look, frozen water is more important or open water to ducks is more important where they're able to drink because that's the most important thing to a duck is being able to get to water and digest food. Now, I mean, what do you guys think about that? Well, again, it's it's my opinion, and, you know, it's just an opinion, is is it doesn't ever get too cold for a duck. I mean, a duck can withstand 30 below, 40 below, however cold it gets, a duck can stand it. But like I said, up in up in Canada where we hunt, when the, when the water starts freezing over, the ducks have to go. Now, I've seen it cold enough to where if the snow was a powdery snow and it was 10 inches deep and... You know, when it's powdery, it'll still blow off. I mean, you know, snow drifts, and it'll blow off uh, to where those ducks can get to food. Uh, but what happened this year up there is it snowed four or five inches, and it warmed up a little bit, and it got a crust on top of that ice, and then it snowed back on top of that. So you couldn't hardly drive a nail down through that stuff. So it got so hard that the ducks could not get any food, and it, it that's what everybody up there said that, that caused the ducks to move. But when it when I have hunted up there to when it was, you know, zero degrees and below, those ducks would stay just as long as they could keep water open. And again, they would get in these huge groups, and they would half of them would go out and feed, and then they would come back another half. If they all got out, the water was just right on that freezing level. And if they if all of them left, you could see that you could see that ice just freezing over. And as soon as it froze over, they were gone. So it's, that's uh, one of the coolest things there, I've ever heard, Mike. Yeah, and I mean, we filmed them. Yeah, we filmed them doing it. So I know. I mean, I know that for a fact. But they just they just take turns back and forth to that open water until, and it'll get a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller every day. But they'll they'll stay in there as long as they can and 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 keep it open. And then when it finally freezes over, that's when they got to go. Yeah, and you know what, Rocky, you, you may not remember it, but you've actually seen this um, when you and I were in South Dakota. And to give everybody, all of our listeners. A little bit of backstory. Um, Rocky and I took a trip to South Dakota about three years ago, and we uh, went up there and hunted um, with my buddy Matt Shower, Northern Skies Outfitters, the oh around the 15th of November. And again, that's a risky time to go up there, just like Halloween's a risky time to go mm-hmm. into uh, Southern Canada. And we got there at the perfect time. A blizzard, literally, we literally drove in in a blizzard that dropped 15, 18 inches of snow um, on them the day that we arrived. And for the next three days, we pounded the mallards. We uh, had 12 people that could shoot, and we killed our 60 mallards each day. And, Rocky, think about it. What Mike was just telling you, you saw this. Remember on day two, when we set up uh, on that little rise above that pothole, and we steadily had waves of ducks coming from the pothole, and but there were always birds left on the pothole. And that day, I've got a photo on my phone. It was uh, two degrees above zero with a strong north wind, 
But those ducks were there were so many ducks concentrated on that pothole and never froze over, and so we were right beside it and we were able to smash them in that cornfield. And mm-hmm. so I mean, you got to see, think about it exactly what Mike was describing. Yeah, uh, they it was it was ducks all the time in the pothole, and then it was just wave after wave come feed and then go back. Yeah, and you know we were in that dry field. And you mentioned something, too, uh, about not hunting a lot of dry fields um, in the south. But when we do have them down there, you guys uh, make absolutely the most effective product I've ever seen. I mean, a spinning wing decoy is so effective in a dry field, it's unbelievable. What do you attribute that to, Mike? You know, I don't know. When we go to... When we go to Canada and when we hunt up there, again, all the outfitters that are up there, their their cash crops are the geese. It's not the ducks. People want to go to Canada to kill those Canada geese and specks and, you know, snows and everything else. So we'll get out in a in a field, and, I mean, in the last 10 years, we probably hadn't put out a half a dozen duck decoys. They'll get out there and put a goose spread out, and then you get in it, and we'll put four or five spinning wing mojo decoys right in front of us. And when we want to shoot ducks, we turn those mojos on, and the ducks come right there, and we got a. If we put them out ten yards out, we got a ten yard shot. If we put them fifteen yards out, we got a fifteen yard shot. Sometimes we'll have to adjust them to the left or the right to get, you know, to get the firing line to where everybody can get some good shooting. But it's uh, it, one thing up there. It's just the ducks hadn't seen, you know, they hadn't been down through the flyway. People that can kill ducks in Tennessee and Mississippi and Louisiana, where those ducks have seen everything, every spread and every call and been shot at all the way from Alaska or, Canada, or northern Canada all the way down here. You can kill them there. You can kill them anywhere. But when you get them up in the in those you know the potholes of the uh, in Canada, they're brand new ducks. There's still a lot of young ducks up there, and, and they come to those mojos. It's just like reeling them in on a you know it's unbelievable. And it's they get you know when the mojos first came out, it was like that all the way down through the south. You know down anywhere. And every year, you know, it's gotten a little tougher and a little tougher. You know, first year I ever saw a mojo, I saw a guy had one out there, so I said, what is that? And I had to go buy one, so I bought one. And he'd kill half the ducks on this lake, and I'd kill half the ducks. So then I got two, well, I killed more than he did. So then we got to call it the multiple mojo theory. It got to be whoever had the most mojos won. But, you know, it's like anything else. You, you, <laughs> you know, the, the ducks have kind of, I won't say they've gotten accustomed to it, but any, you know, you get the young ducks that are going to come in. You get an old duck that's been up and down the flyway two or three times and seen those mojos. They're going to be wary of them, just like anything else would be. They learn. But so we, hey, Mike, we have to try. Yes, I, I'm going to give you. Uh, I'm going to give you two facts, and I, I don't know if you've okay. seen this study. I don't know if you've seen this study or not. But before this morning, and knowing that you were coming on the show, uh, you know, I did a little reading about mm-hmm. spinning wing decoys. Right. And just to see if you know these numbers, hunter success goes up. I can't remember the exact percentage on that. If using a spinning wing decoy, and also this is the most interesting one to me, the cripple, the number of cripples goes down if you're using a spinning wing decoy. Did you know that? I did. I did. We we try to work, and I can't tell you the exact numbers right off the top of my head. But we work with the game and fish commissions in different states, and and uh, you know the average the average hunter is just it's like have you ever been to Texas on one of those ranches that uses a feeder, 
And if you go out there and you sit on the stand, and if your feeder doesn't go off, you just feel like you might as well wrap it up and leave. You know, you're not going to see a deer because the feeder didn't go off. Well, half the time, you're going to kill the same deer, whether it did or whether it didn't. But, it's, it, you know, anything that gives you more confidence in, uh, in hunting, well, if, you're, if that mojo gives you more confidence, then you're going to be, you're going to stay there longer. You're going to hunt quieter. You're going to think that the ducks are going to come in. So anything that can give you a little confidence is it will keep you out there hunting a little bit longer, which is going to increase your success rate. Uh, and on a lot of days uh, where mojos help the most, you know, people to us, you know, the old timers, people thought that a rainy, dreary, cloudy, overcast day was the best day you could go duck hunting. Well, we want a bright, sunshiny, absolute clear with a little wind movement on there, and that's the days we like to hunt with the mojos and and the other thing people think is the that the mojos later in the season uh you know the ducks get wary and and uh and you know if you have a spinning wing decoy in your spread then you know they're going to see it and they're not going to come well, really what mojos what the spinning wing concept was was designed for was to attract ducks from long distances uh, we've had guys in crop dusters where we hunt up there in the Delta fly and said so they could see that flash in the perfect conditions for miles. You know, if we had four or five of them sitting out there, well, the same thing with ducks. They can see these things from miles. The, the mojo was never meant to be a finishing tool. It was just meant to get the ducks close enough to where you, the rest of your spread would take over and your calling ability and the rest of your spread, if it was life-like enough or, or looked, you know, like it was something that would pull a duck in, then that's that's the reason they would come in. But it was never, the mojo decoy was never made to bring a duck from two miles off and bring him in and put him right in the decoys by itself. And a well, lot of people I, look, have gotten we, that. Go we, I mean, we know, we know that they make you more successful, but I just thought that was really cool that yeah. the, the, the number of crippled ducks, um, which is important to all of us, goes way sure. down because that mojo pulls them in closer and you yeah. – can put a better finishing shot on the duck. Right. Yeah, it, yeah like I say, and, they've, they've done studies, and it does do that. Yeah, well, and, you know, here I want to interject something here, too, because I've been sitting here listening really closely to Mike, and I think this is very, very interesting. Um, I'm going to make about three points here. Number one, you would think that someone who is in your position, Mike, host of Mojo TV, um, obviously one of Terry's best friends and very, very active in the company also, would be so biased, you know, about them being the end all, but you're really not. I mean, what I just heard you say then was, hey, it's a tool for getting their attention. And, you know, we know that. I mean, you know that at Mojo. I think that was really cool. Number two, I've heard so many people over the years talk, and my opinion has changed. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, there's somebody out there listening who can say, I guarantee you can say, well, I've heard Jay Paul say, I wish they'd ban them all, you know, because they mm-hmm. had it one time. I felt that way. I don't feel that way anymore because I've taken a look at the data and the studies and the one Rocky sighting that was in Wildfowl is, you know, two things. Yeah, it helps you kill more juveniles. Well, and it helps you kill more ducks that have been feeding and are, are what they term basically to be lazy. You know, they're fat, they're happy, they've got a full crawl. Oh, we see the flash. Hey, there are some buddies there on the water. We're going to go there. But overall, I think that there's a whole lot of good in it, too. 
as Rocky was pointing out, if it reduces the number of cripples, I mm-hmm. think that definitely helps tip the scale back the other direction. Right. And, uh, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's pretty neat that you guys take a look at it that way and that you're so unbiased. And then the third thing that I want to bring up and ask you about is the, the flock of flicker, because now you've got this new device that came out that personally, I think it's going to be a game changer, just like the original spinner was over 15 years ago. Tell me about that. The flock of flickers, we kind of came up with this idea a couple of years ago. We were having a lot of people, especially in the South, that, like say, the ducks have seen everything there is to see all the way down. And and they had the notion that later in the season, the best thing to do is just not to run your decoys. You put them out there and put them on remotes. And, uh, you know, and then if, once the ducks see it, just turn them off. But to us... If you look at a, especially on a still day, if you look at a, a block of of decoys, I mean, it just looks dead. If you look, and now that we've got all these drones that we can go up, you know, a thousand feet or five hundred feet or wherever a duck flies, and you look down on a on a set of of decoys, especially on a still day, it just looks dead down there. And if you go up and you film up a, a flock of ducks, actually live ducks on the water, there's movements, flashing, wings flapping. You know, there's all kind of stuff going on. You don't hardly, they're just not sitting out there still. So instead of having five or six or eight or ten big mojos with the big wings flapping all the time, what we wanted to do is see if we could get uh, a smaller item, which we came up with this thing called a flock of flickers, and you get six of them in a pack, and they're about as big around, the, the, the motor part is about as big around as a baseball, maybe a little bit bigger, and it's got a little wing about three or four inches tall, three or four inches wide, just one single wing sitting on top of it. And the six items, the six flock of flickers, the six little individual wings that are in this package are all on timers that are all set on different speeds. One of them may stay off two seconds and on three seconds and on five seconds and on four seconds, and then the next one is is a different random pattern. So we put these out. We started testing them up in Canada uh, first, just putting them out in dry field to see if they it would scare the geese off, and it didn't seem to scare the geese because, again, you're not getting near the the flash or near the movement that you're getting with the big spinning wing decoys. But what we do is take a pack of six or maybe two packs of twelve. You can put twelve of them in a you know a little bitty backpack because they're not small. The wings come off, and and then we'll just disperse those throughout the spread. And it looks like you've got you know if you put out 48 decoys, then you put six or eight of these flock of flickers and just throw them all over, you'll get a little flash over here, and then a little flash over here on this side of the spread, and a little flash over here. And it, to us, it just looked more realistic in a set of just, you know, standard decoys than it would if you had eight or ten full-size, full-body mojos spinning out there, you know, hovering over them. So this gives just a little flash here, there, and the other spread out across the whole spread, and uh, so far, we've had a lot of good luck with it. We used them. We've been using them for a couple of years, just testing them. And uh, and we used them, started filming with them heavy now. This year, we used them all during teal season, had good luck with them, and have been having really good response from them so far that the, it gives just enough flash that uh, the ducks aren't scared of it, but they're interested enough to come in and look and, and land in the, you know, in the spread with the flock of flickers working. 
Mike, there's uh I remember back a few years ago when there was areas you couldn't use mojo or spinning wing decoys and now mm-hmm. it's kind of popped back up again in areas of Arkansas. Um and through the through the grapevine we were talking that, that the flock of flicker and things like that have been possibly something that, that pushed that decision over the edge. Have y'all heard anything like that at Mojo or was it just something they were gonna do regardless over there? Yeah, it's something they were gonna do regardless. They uh you know there's no basis behind uh really behind what they're doing. The, there's the number of ducks and, and this is what we found, the number of ducks that are killed by hunters is really insignificant. Uh but as far as uh, I don't want, I won't say it's insignificant. Uh on a on a daily basis, it's the number of days you can hunt. So you can you know, it's you can take one day off of of hunting across a state as opposed to how many ducks would be you know, be killed or being shot that if you reduce a limit or increase a limit because most people don't ever kill a limit anyway, you know. Some people are lucky enough to be able to hunt in a place, but you take the average hunter and he goes out and you know, if he hunts a week, he's going to kill two ducks a day, so he's going to kill 14 ducks. You could increase that limit to 10 ducks, and he's still going to kill 14 ducks. So, uh, you know, yeah. and they're not going to kill. Uh, it's uh, with, the, with the Mojo decoys, the number of people using them as opposed to the number of ducks killed over them, it's going to help a few people uh, that do use them, but it's also going to, you know, it's going to, keep the ones that are that are not having luck you know if a guy goes out and he hunts 10 days in a row and he doesn't kill a duck he's not gonna he's not gonna stay a duck hunter very long and we need all the duck hunters you know people say well i don't want any more duck hunters well if you don't you're not gonna be in the duck hunting business very long the same with all hunters you know there's just a very limited number of hunters and if uh if we don't try to get more opportunity and bigger limits so so you know we're the ones that are putting the, the money out there so anything we can do to increase the number of hunters and the and you know, as long as it's it's uh, feasible, and as long as it's uh, it, it doesn't hurt the population, of which you can see the numbers now. I mean, the duck hunters are the ones that work every year to get more and more and more ducks. It's not the bird watchers that do it; it's us. You know, I, I want to thank you for bringing that out too, because you just really added a little bit of credibility to something that we talked about a few weeks ago, and that I actually took a little bit of fire for. Um, Hannah Riggs, our resident intern writer for DuckSouth.com, wrote an article about killing hens, and she interviewed me for it. And I pointed out that there's been a lot of research that's you know shown us that hunter mortality on ducks, whether it's hens or drakes, is insignificant in the big picture when we have exactly right. very healthy populations. You know, right mm-hmm. now today. You know we're well, well above the long term term average, and I agree with you 100%. I really do not understand the ban in the state of Arkansas by Umito and Dave Donaldson, which are the two most popular WMAs. Because in the big picture, in the big scheme of things, you know the mojo may help you get ducks from a distance, but it, it's not that big of a of an edge. Um, there are times, you know, when I think it's going to bring in birds that you normally wouldn't get because they're going to see you. But, hey, that's going right. to increase hunter success. And I just want mm-hmm. to thank you for pointing out that we need all the hunters that we can get. 
And I would definitely agree with you that that's probably in the big picture of things detrimental to our sport, doing things that might drive people away. Because you're right. If a guy goes a few times and he never fires a cap, he's going to move on to doing something else. And it might even that's be right. outside the shooting sports. And that's going to yeah. be bad for us all in the long run. So, man, I have one. Oh, my bad, Joe Paul. Go ahead. I just have one more question. But go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just, I just I just think that was great that Mike brought that out. I mean, obviously, you're one of the most knowledgeable guys we've ever had on this podcast, and uh, you know I really appreciate your your frank opinion. I know that you're running out of time too, and we need to wrap it up, Josh. Uh, yeah, by all means, buddy. Yeah, no, no. Just out of curiosity, Mike, are there any other states that have any sort of ban on them? I'm just just curious. I just want to know that before we finish. You know, it out. there are there are Pennsylvania. There's four or five states that do. California has got a. It, they allow them uh, in certain times. You know, after a certain period, like the, after their first break, they you know you can use them. And there's a few more, but it's uh it's accepted pretty much across the U.S. and Canada, and and we sell them all over the world. We, you know, we just. Uh, uh, we just had a friend of ours that was hunting over in the Netherlands, and he's and he's going to. Uh, uh, we've hunted with them in Australia, and we've hunted New Zealand, and and uh, so they're you know they they use them all over the world, and uh, and they work just as well over, over there as they do over here. You know Ramsey Russell. I know y'all know Ramsey. Ramsey just got back. He was hunting over uh, near Sweden over there. They've got a lot of mallards, and he said he took the flock of flickers over there, and he said they worked excellent over there. So it's. Uh, you know, it's a worldwide deal, but but we have to keep them. We have to keep the people. You know, especially the kids. These kids have got so much to do now, and their attention spans about one second long. So, uh, if you know, if if you can't get them interested in duck hunting or some other type of hunting, it, they're just so easy to lose doing you know soccer and baseball and football and motorcycles and video games. You got you got to give them something out there and, and keep them interested, or we'll we'll lose the whole sport eventually. Yeah, man, I agree with you. I'll tell you what, I think that that is great, you know, that you guys are having such an impact all around the world. We do know Ramsey. We, we've actually had him on the podcast, and he's a good friend, and uh, he told me a little bit about his experiences um, over there. And we've enjoyed having you. We're about to wrap it up. But before we do, I want to remind everybody out there that the On Next podcast, powered by Duck South, is brought to you by Hardcore Brands and Hardcore Decoys makers of some of the most innovative and durable products out there for the waterfowler today. We know it's not easy being hardcore. Mike, man, we appreciate you, and we appreciate Mojo also and uh, all the stuff that you and Terry have done to give back to the sport. You really are a legend in the waterfowling community, and it was Absolutely a pleasure to have you on here today. Um, about to wrap it up, and I'm going to ask Rocky and Josh for their closing thoughts. But I got one more question for you before I do. We ask you this get. one quite frequently, and we haven't in a while. But I want to know if you're out there hunting and you're ready to eat, what are you going to stow in your blind bag? If I go, if I go looking in your blind bag to steal, to steal a snack, what am I going to get? A Mountain Dew and a Hostess Twinkie. <laughs> Have you ever read what the ingredients are in that Twinkie? <laughs> yeah, see, that's a good thing, because I know if I left the Twinkie in there last year, it's going to be just as good this year. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Those true. things will last forever. Ooh, they will last forever. Uh, Amen. All right, Josh, what you got for us to close out? I don't have much. Look, Mike, I really enjoyed it. Um, 
Uh, I think that that last question that Jay Paul asked uh, at, at the very end is a that is a big topic uh, with everybody on the site. So I'm glad glad he got that one out there. But look, I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate everything that y'all do, and uh, look forward to to meeting up and hopefully hunting one of these days. Sound like a plan. I'm I'm I to look for it myself. Look for look forward to it myself. Rocky. <laughs> Mike, I'm I'm going to thank you for two things. One is obvious. Thank you for coming on the podcast today because, you know, this has been another one of those podcasts that it is information over overload, and I hope that I hope that people get as much out of it as I've taken away today. But also, I want to thank you for this, Mike. As a guide that's been guiding 20 years now, thank you for making my life easier. <laughs> because I have killed a, I've killed a lot more ducks. And it's been a lot easier with my mojo out there. Well, I appreciate that. that, that that's what we're looking for. Yes, sir, man. Well, we want to thank you again for being on here. This may be one of the most informative podcasts that we've ever had. You certainly brought a lot to the table on this Halloween, and uh, today is Halloween, and. Later in the week, we're going to have a biologist from Delta Waterfowl with us. Um, There's a phenomenon that a lot of people in the waterfowling world refer to as the Halloween flight. And, you know, it's a migration that usually occurs in October 1st of November. We're going to have one of the experts from Delta talk to us a little bit about that and the things that influence the migration every year. I think that's going to be a, a great, great show later on in the week. But today has definitely been awesome. I want to thank my co-hosts, Rocky LaFleur and Josh Webb, for being with us. Mike Morgan, it's been great, and we really appreciate all you guys out there that have taken the time today to listen to the On Next podcast powered by DuckSouth.com.